From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. My guest today is Adriana Trigiani, an energizing force of nature. She's the author of 20 best-selling books. She's an award-winning filmmaker and now the host of a new podcast, You Are What You Read with Book of the Month. Adriana grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, where she co-founded The Origin Project, an in-school writing program in Appalachia. We're going to start our conversation here, talking about how her Appalachian and Italian heritage has shaped her. We'll then delve into why she reinvents herself every seven years and how one of her first jobs as a temp on Wall Street has informed how she organizes her days ever since. I loved this conversation. We talked about theater and playwriting, and and we also got to the root of why time is so important to Adriana. It's kind of this fundamental driving force that's been informed by deaths in her family. I'd love to know what impacts you most about this conversation. I hope you really love it. Thanks for listening. Adriana Trigiani, I cannot believe I get to have you on the pod. You're an icon, a legend. How many books have you written? Uh, 20, 20. It'll be 23 by the end of the year. Oh my gosh, 23. Yeah, yeah. A couple of months ago, I had just finished reading Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Yes, yes the, our and, greatest living American novelist, in oh my, my opinion. Oh my God. I was floored by it. And of course, I love reading the acknowledgments. Your name came up in there as someone very important who has uh, founded the Origin Project. So I'd love you to explain what that is and then kind of connect it to your origin story, why this is so important to you. Okay. Well, the first thing you need to know about the Origin Project about 12 years ago... um, an old friend of mine, Nancy Bollmeyer Fisher, who lives in San Francisco at the time. This is very difficult, Angela, to talk about it because she just passed away suddenly. I just saw. So I'm sorry. I, I know. And, you know, all my life I believed that you know when you're going to go. But there's no way Nancy knew she was leaving this planet because everything was lined up. I was going to see her in two weeks in Virginia, and we were doing a project with the kids. And what the Origin Project is, is a year-round in-school writing program. Last year, we had 2,700 kids. And what it is, is the first day of school, Nancy would show up at the various schools with a journal. So then I do a workshop and teach the kids how to journal. But because Appalachia is so fraught in the media, And the last groups you can make fun of are women, hillbillies, and old people. Okay? And we say hillbillies with pride. Some people think it's a slur, but since I am a hillbilly, I can say it. I'm an Appalachian Italian-American, which is a mouthful, but it's true. And I wanted the kids to write their origin stories. So we said, let's pour our resources, our time, and our energy into these kids. And what they do is they write one story, kindergarten through through grade 12, about their Appalachian origins, their roots. 
And of course, you know, Virginia is very diverse now, which is very exciting. So they have a huge immigrant population. So at the end of the school year, we would publish in a book their stories, the Origin Project Anthology, and we did nine of them. And we did a cookbook this year because a lot of the kids, their stories, you know, like Mamma made cornbread. And so they wanted to share the recipe. So we did that. Nancy was, she was from a small town, first Wyoming, then Montana. And I was a $6 an hour temp on Wall Street. I was worth every penny, by the way. And she was one of the bosses. And she was amazing. You know, there were not a lot of women there then. This is the 1980s, the mid 80s. And, um, and I loved her. So it's all very hard to process, but, but the Barbara Kingsolver connection, and then I'll get into it, is Demon Copperhead takes place in Lee County. And if you leave the house that I was raised in and you drive two miles down the road, you're in Lee County. I, I used to say this, God goes to Lee County to dream because it's these farm fields, it's gorgeous. And in Wise County, we had more of the coal mines and stuff, but still the towns were gorgeous and the people, the Appalachian people, there are no better people in the world. And Barbara Kingsolver, she took David Copperfield and she set it in Lee County. So when you read it, Angela, that's what it's like there. So our kids went crazy for it. They really loved it. And we did a program with her. She is, she's everything to me. I think she, you know, I grew up, I didn't know any authors. And so to, to get to know her is, has been such a treasure. I just adore her. Well, you mentioned that some of the kids wanted to add recipes to their yes. stories, and yes. you do that as well. One of your early books, Cooking with My Sisters. Mm-hmm. Now, anything with some you know, embedded recipes from your grandma is just all up yeah. my alley. Why was that one of the first books you wanted to write? Um, well, um, as you could see, I'm an Italian-American, and I'm very focused on it. I love to cook, and I love to share recipes with you. I had two grandmothers, Lucia, who said, you can have my recipes, and then my grandmother, Yolanda, called Viola. Viola said, uh, if you share my recipes, I'll come back and haunt you. And, of course, we filled a book with them. Uh, because I figured where she is now, she's in the land of love. She's not going to care. But I do get nervous about dying because I'm afraid she'll be standing there with a hatchet. Like, I told you not to give those recipes away. <laughs> but she was such a great cook. And to me, the family table is everything. So my novels are always have that in it because I feel that the most essential building block of a culture is the shared table. Um, and... And when I go home to Italy, I call it going home to Italy, I'm reminded of it. And when I and I grew up with that. We had a ironclad rule in our house. My father and mother did not care what you were doing at school. You had to be home, all seven of us, for dinner at six. Well, how did the recipes combine the Appalachian vibe and flavors like were there some fusion is there there's a lot fusion? of fusion you're so right there's so much fusion angela i mean one of my favorite things is the covered dish supper and you know those are casseroles so basically we would merge like lasagna for example to me that's a casserole you know it's in that long nine by 12 pan and uh you know it's in layers okay and i learned so many great recipes from the folks back home. 
So you have like that ambrosia, you know, it's that jello dish with the coconut in it. It's very British, to be honest. And then, um, and then they would do things like you have never had a potato dish like you've had in Southwest Virginia. Betty Klein does a breakfast casserole that you just go crazy. It's got sausage in it and eggs and cheese. And it's like, but that's how that sort of the Italianness. I mean, they do interesting things with Italian food there, but they, they got things from my mom, like the meatball recipe. Now they're, everybody down there makes my mother's meatballs that, you know, my old friends, because they love that recipe and they would have it at my mother's house. So there's a fusion, yes, but basically Appalachian cooking and eating is about the fresh food, hmm. which Italian cooking is too. The herbs are kind of a little different, you know, and, and you know, when we were growing up, when people made spaghetti in Big Stone Gap, it was really hamburger on top of noodles and they were rinsing the noodles. And I think my mother eventually trained people, don't rinse those noodles. You just drain them because you're losing the flavor. And then your food will hold that flavor, keep a little bit of that, of the salted water to the side and it helps you blend everything. So we, we shared, we have that shared thing and the breads, I mean, the breads in Southwest Virginia, oh, the rolls, you know, Hope Meads rolls. I mean, I put the recipe in Big Stone Gap because you have to eat them once in your life. You'll know what I'm talking about. Speaking of recipes, the Italian wedding uh, cookies. cookies in your most recent book, Instant New York Times bestseller, is based on a true story. Now, is yes. that from a grandparent's story or something that was handed down through the generations? Well... I was over in Italy and I was with my Italian family over there, my cousins, and stories came out. I mean, eventually I want to go over there, Angela, and just plant myself because there's so much to write about. But what intrigued me with this, with The Good Left Undone, was I was directing a movie in Scotland and this story, I, I had already written the narrative arc of The Good Left Undone with the intergenerational. But then I found that there were Italian Scots, which I didn't know. I mean, I knew there were some, but I, didn't, I did not know the story of the internment of the Italians during World War II by Winston Churchill, who, by the way, I'm a fan of. But he, this was a doozy of a mistake. But the difference is, is he was a great leader and he owned it. He reversed it. As soon as he saw what happened, he reversed it, which I chronicle in the novel. But when I was over in Italy with my family, I heard a story about my own family and this sort of intergenerational business. And I found out things I didn't know about my family. And I chose the gems and the jewels because of a trip to the Vatican with my husband and daughter. At the last minute, we were doing a tour. And at the last minute, the man that was conducting the tour fell out. And my friend, Gina Casello, who runs our tour company, because we have a tour company where you can walk on the steps of the characters, she called and said, well, I'm going to send Francesco over there. I said, who's he? She said, he works in the Vatican. I said, okay. And we noticed as we were doing our tour, Angela, that he knew everybody. It's like those guards. He knew them yeah. all, the Swiss guards and everything. And so we got outside because at a certain point in the Vatican tour, they take you outside so you could, you know, you could get some water and get some air. And I was just sitting with him by myself. And I said, hey, Francesco, what do you do here? And he said, I worked as the curator of the Vatican Jewels. I said, tell me everything. 
because in that are the Venetian stone cutters who are Jewish and the the way that these stone cutters traveled together to India to find the rubies and to buy the rubies at market and stuff. So, oh, I, I it set the story on fire. What it set an the story on fire. But it all starts, as you said, with that family unit. It's obvious to me and everyone else that time is a very precious commodity for you and that you use it incredibly efficiently. And maybe I want to ask about that word efficiency. Is that, it seems like a clinical way to analyze this kind of alchemy of this creative process you do. How does mm -hmm. that look? First of all, that's a brilliant question. Because lately, and I might say in the last year or so, people are always saying to me, how do you do all this stuff? And Angela, if I broke your day apart, I'd be like, Angela, how do you do it? Let me address time. When I was a small child, I realized nothing's promised. And that happened because of people that in the family that died. I, I'm going to say, and I took the deaths in my family like so seriously, you know, even if it was a great uncle, I was like, he's gone. Even if I wasn't that close to the person. Um, and, and I would say my entire family narrative was built by my mother, whose father died when she was eight years old. Oh, yeah. And I chronicled that in The Shoemaker's Wife, where my grandfather fought in World War I as a kid, and he fell in love with my grandmother. They were from the same mountain, but they fell in love in Hoboken. And he was wearing a doughboy uniform, but she recognized the Bergamasca dialect. And she went, so she went over and talked to him in Italian in that dialect, you know, how every region of Italy has different dialects. My grandmother heard his voice and they wrote to each other when he was in France. And when he came home, they, you did it to earn your citizenship. So you earned your citizenship and you got an honorable discharge. But when they gathered my grandfather's platoon together, they said, you will not see your 40th birthday because you were hit with the mustard gas. Now, my grandfather remembered smelling garlic because it, it was like ammonia and stuff, uh, but it was burning you from within. And he developed a cancer from it and it went to the Mayo Clinic because they lived in Minnesota. And uh, my mother remembers when he came back and he dropped his bag and he said, I'm not going to be oh here gosh, in a year. This is too much. I can't even talk about it. it. I never met this man, but you see, I get emotional because on my mother's deathbed, she was calling for him. You see, so my sense of time is that it's not promised. And also it may appear that I'm prolific and I, I guess I am. My mother said this to me when I had my daughter, she said, get help, get help. So I will not die a rich woman, but I will have trained an army because I hire. And I, I, I had eight interns this summer, and I say, please, join me at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when I have a nervous breakdown. It's hilarious, you know. I'm very passionate of late because people are getting more sensitive. Um, they say, ooh, you know, you're too much. But here's the thing. If you want to be excellent, you have to push. Mm. You have to push, and you know this, Angela, because you are excellent. You can't just sit back and go, oh, that's okay. You have to push. And I don't mean be mean, but I mean be deliberate, be direct, and be honest. And if you can be those things, 
you can become the storyteller you hope to be. See, see, you and I know in conversations, we can tell who's, who's taking us on a buggy ride. It's one of my favorite expressions, Clark Gable and uh, Riff Raff. Um, no, maybe it's Spencer Tracy. But the idea is, don't take me on a buggy ride. Be direct with me. You don't like it? Okay, good. What can we do to fix it? Or we're having a conversation. What, what is it I can unlock in you that maybe you haven't talked about before? No one has ever asked me about time management, and I had to learn it. Honestly, I learned it on Wall Street. I learned it being a $6 an hour temp because... Here I was, this young woman, I'm 20 years old, 21, and I'm working in an office and they don't care that I have no experience. I had to look like I knew what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And the people that are there to train you kind of like go, well, figure it out. So that shaped me, and, but I watched how they did the time of stuff, how they managed the day. They'd get in there really early and they left right at five usually, but so much went into what they were doing that I went, well, there's something to this. And I applied that work ethic to my day. And that's how I run my office now. Oh, thank you for sharing that because I'm about to go into a conversation too, where you feel like things have just not being said. And it's like, let's say what's really going on because then we can move through it and come up with solutions. And I have a feeling we'll be friends for life. I can just tell you're simpatico. It's, I don't think there's a limitation on uh, communication. It's when people withhold information that it's not interesting. If they have a guard up, you know, in this day and age, for crying out loud, forget it. I mean, I could go out here and host my thing and somebody could take a picture of me, you know, and, and you know, and I, I would like to think I could curate those images. You can't, you can't, you can't. You are of the world now, folks. You're of the world. And therefore, and, and I can read, and I know you do too, because you read a lot. People say, how do you read so much? Well, I'm, I'm watching a little less TV. I read more because I have deadlines, right? But I get the books in advance. But I could tell when you're taking me for a buggy. I could tell when an author phoned it in. I could tell when an author, and listen, sometimes a big hit does it. You, there's no, first of all, we're in the one hit, I call it the sugar, sugar industry. I love my industry of publishing. I love it, love it, love it. I love the people in it. Hmm. They don't know. They can try, but they're not sure what's going to hit. And that's what, those are the stories I delight in. I delight in that. You know, oh, really? It's not magic, but it's something. And it's also where the world is when something hits. And all exactly. you can do is hope hope, and go for those stories and support mm -hmm. those stories. And really those people writing those stories that yeah. have that. It's, it's like a clear energy. Sometimes, you know, when I sometimes, you know, when you're meeting a person who's clear in yes. that they're, they're not withholding or they're just arriving be, as who they are. You're making me think of this. Everybody's not going to like you, but you have to know what you're going for. And you, you have to let the parts that are not important wash off of you. Yeah. And you have to really, truly... You have to be your own best friend and advocate. I just read a quote by Abraham Lincoln. I had a little book I had sitting around, and I mean, there's so many books here. I hope you come visit me because I could take you through 
the stacks. But Abraham Lincoln said it, you know, at the end of the day, I sit down, I'm quiet with myself. As a Roman Catholic, we call it examination of conscience. But he says, he says, I keep my own counsel. And when I get quiet with myself, I'm paraphrasing Abraham Lincoln. He said, the friend that I connect with at the end of the day is me. I go inward. I've also read that you reinvent yourself knowingly or at, you know, the seven to ten year mark. Absolutely. So which phase, like, are you in your blue period right now? What is going on right now? Okay. I am at the start of a new seven-year cycle right now. Ooh. I'm at the start of a new one. So what does that mean? A lot of what I wrestle with every day is what am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? And a lot of that is shedding. You know, I've been so fortunate, but it's, to me, life is about, it's about lightening the load I'm carrying as opposed to adding to it. Meaning I take away, I really struggle and try to um, be honest about where I am. So at the beginning of this cycle, I've made this next seven years about communication. So I talk to you, you talk to authors, I talk to authors. I think we're making one meatball here, which is we want to understand how on this planet, we can have a creative force be the force, not destruction, because there's only two energy fields on planet Earth, creation and destruction. And what do you want to be a part of? So I would say in the next seven years, communication, making people laugh. I'm itching to direct a movie again. Mm and I have one, and I want to direct it in Italy, and I'm making that happen. I had directed Whoopi Goldberg in Big Stone Gap, and you know, I don't think there's anybody like Whoopi in the world. I think she's amazing. And so I came up with an idea. She said, think of something that we can do over here, and I did. And so what, and she said to me, you need to write the novel of that. Well, I'm writing another novel, but I am gonna novelize it, but I can novelize it as I'm making the movie or after I've directed the movie. So I wrote the script first, which is what I did with Big Stone Gap. I wrote the script first, then the book. I, I like that because I'm dramatizing. And then the novel is this luscious enterprise where I can describe everything and everybody. And, you know, whereas a screenplay is very much the train cars that you've got to get but, moving. Uh, okay, I want to know. You started, you, you just talked about being a screenwriter and a playwriter first. Can you just fill that gap between Wall Street and playwriting? I know any playwright in any time in New York City or at any point needs a gig to pay the rent. So I'm at St. Mary's at Notre Dame in Indiana. My beautiful professors give me the opportunity to write and direct on the main stage, which was a huge deal because that was for the professional and the professional directors they brought in. When I was a freshman, I went into Dr. Reg Bain in the theater department and I said, I'm a theater major. And he said, well, he said, you you just got here and you don't declare to your second semester sophomore year. And he, I said, no, you don't understand. This is my life 
and I need to do this. Now, I never told my family I was doing this. I just knew college was going to change me. I was going to become the person I was supposed to be. So I wrote a play because I'm obsessed with Shakespeare. And I come from Appalachia. Okay, so let's figure that one out for a second. But I rewrote the Cleopatra story. And it's called Notes from the Nile. And it was about a woman who's a ruler in a world of misogynists. And all, she, all they want to give her credit for is her beauty. And I had a comedy troupe called The Outcast that when I moved to New York, I did that. Because that, for me, was a way to get my writing out there. So I come to New York. My first off-Broadway show was Secrets of the Lava Lamp, starring Camille Saviola in 1985 at the Manhattan Theater Club. And I got my ass kicked. Mel Gussow reviewed it. And, you know, I was doing that temp job. And they saw it in the New York Times that I had ultimately failed. And I couldn't understand why anybody thought I was a failure. I had gotten the thing yes. going, right? And I had been hired by this team. And, you know, I thought this is a success. But everybody at that time, here I am, this Appalachian, Italian-American who went to school in Indiana in a school nobody knew, St. Mary's College. And everybody at the time on Broadway who was a playwright went to Yale. I actually remember calling Yale from my temp job and saying, what do I have to do to get in there? Because I didn't know how to get to my goal. But the truth is, Angela, and I'm saying this even lo these many years later, that it wasn't about that. It was about me owning my own life and saying, well, if that's not done, I can do it. And I, that is exactly how I built this career. Nobody came to me and say, said, write a novel. But when I did it, I loved it. And it attracted to it my now agent, who's just been my lifelong friend, these girls that started out in the William Morris and ICM mail rooms, they, they were New York girls. See, I wasn't from here. I didn't even know what an agent was. They taught me all that. And they'd come to the club act. I was living in a boarding house. You, you're getting the picture here. I no am. money, no prospects, no connections. But I willed it. I willed it. And I said, no, I'm going to do this. Now, I wanted to get to Broadway, but then when I got to off-Broadway and I saw what happened, where they were so snobby and, like, you couldn't make mistakes. By the way, I'm one of those that can't make mistakes. Um, there are people that they forgive, but I was not one of them. So then my friends were like, well, you've got to make money. I said, I sure do. And they said, get into television. And that's how I got into TV, using my playwriting skills. And when I got to Hollywood, I was like, nobody here was a theater major. It was they were from fancy schools and they were not theater majors. And I thought, well, how do they understand the construct of a play? But I was also a director, so I knew how to do it. So I would say dramatizing is in my books because of my playwriting. Everything goes back to that. And so dramatizing to me is writing a film script. So I look at film scripts differently from everybody else. Um, I don't think you know if it's a good script till it's in the mouths of the actors. I just don't. And they go, oh, it's a great screenplay. No, it isn't. Put it on its feet, then I'll tell you. So I direct that way, you see. Yeah. So the actor is empowered with the words. I don't expect the actor 
to fill in where the work hasn't been done. And, you know, the actors always save you. They always do. When you love them, you respect them, and you give them the tools that they need. They're well, there this, for you. I'm imagining such a dynamic, enriching set experience with you yes. at the helm. I moved to New York to be an actress, and I was in an off-off-Broadway show that, yes. you know, got pretty bad reviews. Let's talk about that theater, because theater is one uh. of the last immediate art forms. It's like, to me, it's akin to reading, but theater is alive. You know, I live in Greenwich Village. Around 10 to 8, I, I get excited. Do you get excited? When you're an actor, it's it's almost like it's in your DNA. You know what time it is. I get nervous, so I don't relish. I was one of those people that would black out on stage and come off and go, did it happen? Is it okay? Oh, my gosh. Well, you, you know, you're at the highest end of the food chain. I mean, not every time, but... I, and I would almost have such self-loathing in those minutes before stepping on because I didn't think I could do it. I, would, I still have dreams about humiliating myself on stage and letting everyone down. That's you know, so I, interesting. I better... But to me, it's spiritual. Like, the theater to me is of the spirit. You know, we have that thing that we say when there are two or one or two or more of you gathered in his name. Well, when there are two or more of you gathered around this story, get ready. Get ready. Reading is that reader to subject exchange, but in the theater, it's me, it's who's sitting next to me, it's those actors, it's the playwright, it's the director, it's the musicians, it's everything and everybody. And when I walk into an empty theater, to this day, I'm in church. I'm my highest self. I'm my, my most resplendent self. And the fear that you talk about, Angela, all that is is reverence. It's awe. It's your highest self. You want to serve. Because that's what actors are doing. Sit, sit quietly and listen. I'm going to tell you a story. So I only have you for a couple more minutes. And I have... Okay. Two questions. A, I want to let everyone know that you are launching a podcast with Book of the Month yeah. um, called You Are What You Read. And just for a minute, tell us what that the mission is for that and, you know, okay. your excitement level. Okay, so, you know, in a world of, I don't think there can be too many podcasts, like there can't be too many books. I love to listen, like you're delicious. I love to listen. And so I had been doing from a little bit before the pandemic, it's almost five years. I had, I thought, how can I serve? I've been very lucky in the way I've been published. And I thought, well, how can I serve? I go all over the country and I meet all these authors. And I thought, what good is it if I don't introduce you to them, right? In the same way you're doing it. So I would have this Facebook Live show. And then I went, now, wait a minute. Then some people came to me and said, why don't you do a podcast? And I said, and that's the company that produces me. And I said, well, can I do a deep dive? I said, here's what's really interesting to me. You are what you read. You really are. The books that built our souls. So I start with your childhood books. 
And when I talk to someone and they've read Too Many Mittens, which is, which was, you know, or, or um, Night Kitchen, Maurice Sendak, or Corduroy, or Harold and the Purple Crayon, or No Fighting, No Biting, or Frog and Toad by Arnold Lobel. I mean, I could keep going. I know who you are because you're telling me the stories that you gravitate towards. You know, the other day I, I talked to an author. She had read everything I read, but she couldn't be more different from me. She couldn't be more different. Uh, Nancy Drew, the Bobsy Twins, Heidi. I mean, I just went down the line. Pippi Longstocking, you know, and uh, Harriet Spy, all those books. So, so I want to know what you read when you started. What books were given to you? What books you cherished? Because I think those are the fundamental building blocks that lead you to either becoming a conversationalist about books, a fellow reader, a librarian. My mother was a librarian. Or whatever in whatever aspect of storytelling you're interested. So, so when I look at my podcast, I want to get to the meat. I'm trying to get to the meat. Now, as you know, Angela, sometimes folks don't want to get to the meat. But... That's okay. We'll get it to some other way, right? I was a wind in the willows girl. My last question is, yes. what lights you up? Oh, what lights me up? When my daughter walks in a room, when I go back to the mountain in Italy, I'm up on that mountain. I feel peace and serenity. Youth, elderly people really light me up because they'll tell you the truth. My friends' creations, what they write, what they explore, how they manage something, I find that so fascinating. Going home to Big Stone Gap and walking around, being with friends, I think holding on lights me up. That is brilliant. Thank you so, so much. Oh my God, let's do this again. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radofsky. Until next time, bye everyone. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.